0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato, joining you from the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine, Atmospheric and Earth Science in Miami, Florida. My guests are two undersea experts here to help us celebrate Cephalopod Week, our yearly celebration of all things octopus, squid, and cuttlefish. And let me introduce them. My first guest is Dr. Lynn Fieber professor of marine biology and ecology here at the university. She has studied the nervous system of all types of marine invertebrates, including sea slugs and our favorite cephalopods. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Also with me is Dr. Andrea Durant, postdoctoral fellow in the Gross Cell Environmental Physiology and Toxicology Lab who is currently studying how tiny glass squid are faring in a rapidly changing ocean. Welcome to Science Friday.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Lynn, you've worked with cephalopods and other mollusks for many years. How do you conduct research with the animals? I mean, what are you trying to uncover with your work?
2: Well, Ira, the nervous system of all animals is basically the same from squid and octopus up to humans, but also down to snails and very other more simple forms of life. And so if you want to understand how the nervous system operates on an elemental level, on a basic level, like the level of cells, or even the level of molecules, working in simple marine organisms is actually a very good way of approaching this. these ideas. And so if you wanted to know how learning happens or if you wanted to know what a memory is, like if you could hold it in your hand, what is it? Working in a simple animal where you can actually have just a few cells, a few nerve cells that are called neurons, uh, responsible for a behavior, uh, then that's an advantage. It makes it easier for you to understand what causes behavior, what causes learning. And so what I do is I take the elemental way in which nerve cells communicate, and that's electricity. And I listen to nerve cells talking to one another in the brains of marine animals. And I do this with some sort of sophisticated recording equipment, but basically in a dark room, I just listen to the brain talking to itself. And it's a tremendous amount of fun.
0: Wow. Wow. And in fact, I remember when Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for working with Absolutely. So he can actually record single cells. Is it possible oh, yes. to do that? Oh, you can yes. listen to one cell? You can listen to one How do you, you do that? Cell. You have a probe that's tiny enough?
2: Yes. Yeah, so you have a little glass electrode that's filled with seawater, and you poke it into the cell. And then you have some sophisticated recording equipment, very sensitive. And if you want, you can look at it visually. You can look at squiggles on your oscilloscope. Or you can translate it into music and listen to it. No. So, honestly.
0: Wow. The songs of the cells of the cephalopods, I think we've got something here now, Andrea. your research doesn't focus so much on neurobiology, right, but on the physiology of a small cephalopod called the glass squid. Tell us what that what is a glass squid, and what do you do with
1: it? Yes, a glass squid they're actually quite abundant in the pelagic and and deep sea. Um, they, you would hear them as cockatoo squid as well. Um, and they actually look a lot like jelly. So I don't think a lot of people realize they're looking at squid when they see them, Um, these are really really cool animals they're really abundant and what I'm really interested in is they use a really unique strategy for buoyancy and that's very different than the shallow water squids that you're commonly probably used to seeing Um, octopods or octopuses um, use a very different strategy as well they crawl and swim on the bottom Uh, shallow water squids are actively swimming and use jet propulsion like many um cephalopod species and it's an elaborate funnel locking mechanism and it's really really interesting but these squids are are fascinating in that they do things very differently and they hold on to a waste product and basically create a fluid that is just a little bit less dense than seawater and that accounts for their body weight and gives them lift and so what that's known at is neutral buoyancy and they right. basically are the same density of seawater and that really is an advantage in the deep sea because they can um, use less energy dedicated to swimming and such
0: yeah if you're a scuba diver you know all about New- exactly neutral. so <laughs> so they're really old-time scuba divers is what, what absolutely they're doing. Yeah. How, how did you yeah. get interested in this were you always working with them
1: yeah so one of my advisors said i would make everything about ammonia um, and this is true, and it seems to have followed me to the Rosensteel School. Uh, the bread and butter of what I do is really looking at how animals use this waste product, how they excrete it, and there's a lot of peculiar ways that animals use ammonia. And this is a common waste product, humans excrete it as urea, so your urine is very high in, in levels of urea. So most aquatic animals will flush ammonia out of their gills or gill-like structures or in the urine or in the feces. And these squid decide to hold on to it in really high levels that would kill probably most cells and, and organs and, and animals in general. And they do this in a specialized chamber that they possess that is not seen in many squid families. Um, and yeah, so I'm really... Yeah.
0: I can see why you're interested in this.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I mean,
1: it's, it's fascinating. You
0: know.
1: I, I will say that it's, some, it's a strategy about half of squid families use. And yeah, so these are, these are really interesting in that they really use the specialized chamber for, for buoyancy instead of that's air. That's cool. Yeah.
0: That's very cool. Now, Lynn, I know that cephalopods are kind of mollusk, but you work on the sea slug. Is there a connection, a difference? Oh, yes. Or-
2: so I work on a type of marine snail that's called the California sea hare and is sometimes called a slug. It is a marine animal. And it is uniquely suited for studies of learning and memory because even though it only has a few thousand nerve cells in its brain, which is really not very many, you have 86 billion nerve cells in your brains, and cephalopods have half a billion nerve cells in wow. their brain. So if you have a, an action or a procedure that you've taught this animal, there are only a few nerve cells involved. And so that makes it a lot easier to sort of track down exactly what the change is in those nerve cells when the animal learns or when it ages or something like that. And so that's the animal that I work on.
0: So you can apply that to um, the other cephalopods, the kinds that we're talking about?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the general premise that we all work on is that we try to understand a biological concept in a simple organism first. We call that a model. And once we've nailed it down, once we know what that learning is, then we test out our hypothesis on a more complex animal. Whereas uh, a sea hare can be had for about $20 after we rear it here at the Rose Steel School. And squids and octopus for research are extremely hard to come by. Uh, they are intelligent animals. We don't want to mess with them. Number one, they are capable of such complex
0: learning. Okay, give me an example. of Yeah. That.
2: So, well, one of the most astounding things I think, when you think about an octopus's capabilities for learning how to hunt and how to interact with this environment is that it knows them as soon as it hatches out, right? I mean, they hatch out as little miniatures of the adults and they only live for a year. So they have an awful lot to accomplish in that year. They have to hunt and explore their environment and find mates and breed and then die. And so in an experimental sense, in the laboratory, for example, you might teach an octopus to not attack a new stimulus in its environment. That can be done. You can teach the octopus to not react. Its normal tendency would be to immediately attack a new stimulus in its environment.
0: Something in its tank? or That's something?
2: right. And by attack, I mean go after it, right. handle it, Uh, Try to see if it's edible, of course. Uh, You always want to know that, if it's edible, especially if it's something new. A
0: lot of us like that.
2: Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Of course, if it's a threat, you want to be proactive, right? You know, you want to be the master of your domain, and you want to actually address that threat head on. So you can teach the octopus to not do that and it isn't easy for the octopus to uh, restrain itself from that normal impulse. And you do this by either giving a reward or a punishment, Uh, and then you can test out the concept that you have brought to that animal model from an earlier animal model with just a few thousand nerve cells and test it out and find out now if you've got a nerve net with thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of neurons trying to communicate with one another to enable that octopus to not act on its instinct and attack that new stimulus uh, Then you can learn more about that process and of course these things are conserved right on up the family tree in primates like ourselves uh, and all other animals as well so um, this is the beauty of animal models from the marine realm, particularly, because you've got so much potential there.
0: Wow, that's an interesting story. I didn't realize how long you know, it would take to do that. I didn't ins- realize that an octopus lives a year. It has a lot to do in that one year.
2: Yes, I, and what I like to tell students is that if octopuses lived for a dozen years or 80 years like humans, they'd take over the world. They absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> There'd be no stopping them, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> if they had that much time to consolidate their knowledge, they'd be unstoppable. If I could, one other thing, that was just, just fascinating to me, is that the cephalopods and all invertebrates that we've been discussing so far, these are animals that don't have a spinal cord, and so they have a brain that's a little bit different structure from vertebrates like us, and dogs and cats, and, whales and other fish. Uh, And cephalopods have such sophisticated capabilities for learning and for uh, exploiting their environment, interacting with it. We have begun to think that when it comes to cephalopods, they have almost what we consider to be a parallel evolution for the way their brain works and actual consciousness. And we didn't used to think this. We used to think that all invertebrates were just the precursors of the vertebrates. They were just you know, various models that evolution came up with before the real event, you know, primates and, and that sort of thing. But now we've come to think of the sophisticated invertebrates like cephalopods as actually having almost a parallel evolution to their, to their way of dealing with the world, and that's Extremely exciting concept to have two chances, invertebrates and vertebrates, to figure out how to reach an intelligence, you know, in everyday life.
0: And maybe take over the world if they were. (laughs) I I see this made-for-TV script going on right now, (laughs) invasion of the octopuses. Okay, Uh, Andrea, I know your research uh, subject, the the extremely tiny glass squid, and um, I can't stress this really enough, they're really tiny right? Um, does this make it hard to work with them in the lab if they're that small? Great
1: question. Um, I think that with my background from dissecting mosquitoes and and, <laughs> and daphnia, which are tiny little crustaceans, and from my perspective, no, it's actually a breath of fresh air. They're pretty, they're pretty <laughs> big. A, they're ginormous, you know, and I can dissect them with the naked eye. Um, but, from a mechanistic viewpoint, we have no idea how exactly these animals produce and retain this much ammonia and how um, they don't die in the process of retaining this ammonia. Um, And this can be really applied to all the species in the deep sea that utilize this strategy, which is many of them. Um, It seems to be a parallel strategy that arose for buoyancy that that really is great for mitigating energy and, and other things. So, do
0: you, do you have to be like a surgeon with tiny little, <laughs>
1: tiny little tools? Yes, we have micro tools that we use. Uh, everything is underneath the microscope, so really teasing apart um, the different organs and such is is a task, but it's an interesting one. But yeah, I feel like a, a mini surgeon. I, I usually joke that I could just perform any surgeries after these, so, yeah.
0: so, We sort of have a doctor in the house. <laughs> yeah, there. exactly,
1: yeah. If you don't have a spine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> Let me take a moment to remind our listeners, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Let's, let's talk about the ocean itself and, and how, um, Andre, I'll ask you also, Lynn. Um, changes in the ocean chemistry and temperature might affect these these animals. Yes. And I'm talking global warming, climate change, things like that.
1: Absolutely. It seems to the contrary, cephalopod abundances, at least squid, are, are booming right now. This is thought to be due to a variety of reasons, I think, from overfishing of a lot of the predator species that would normally eat these squid. They're really thriving in a warming and warmer ocean um species that were never found year-round in the arctic are are being sampled there year-round so we know a lot from historical records how their abundances are changing and there's now residents in northern climates that were never there
0: do we do we know why Uh, Or suspect why?
1: Yes, um, I think that they can respond biologically very easily to changing ocean conditions, even in an individual's lifetime.
0: Soon they'll live 8 to 12 years.
1: (laughs) They just need uh, a day or two to adjust (laughs) to. (laughs) Um, So salinity, temperature, hypoxia, so decreasing dissolved oxygen in the water. Um, Ocean acidification does not really seem to affect... Yeah, so there's not a lot... Of studies but in terms of uh, metabolism they just do just fine so from that perspective right now they're actually extremely abundant
0: the other cephalopods too or just the octopus
1: i'm my knowledge is restricted to squids so i can't speak to to and and i will say that coastal species are going to experience more exacerbated changes and and those are shown to have some effects so but pelagic squid right now are doing quite well I think their biggest concern or biggest threat is deep sea exploration. So a lot of uh, mining and for oils, minerals, gas, uh, the risk of spills with the, the deep water Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico and how it affects, in my case, deep sea animals such as the squid. Um, that seems to be the most imminent threat. And we don't really know a lot, if anything, about the biology of these squids, let alone how they're going to respond to these changing conditions. So really, that's where I'm starting, is just to figure out how these animals work um, and then apply some of these climate change scenarios
0: to. So so we're all just doing a big climate experiment here (laughs) in the ocean. Absolutely. Uh, Lynn, do you have any insight into what the future might be? I think,
2: just to add to what Andy said, I think uh, the the threats to coastal octopuses is overfishing. Many countries have absolutely no regulations about how much they can collect, and octopuses are a very important keystone species in a lot of reef environments, coastal environments. You take out the octopuses and the lobster, you know, two things that people love to eat when they're on vacation, for example, and suddenly you have an explosion of things like urchins, that might be, have, in, in great numbers, when they are allowed to really bloom, uh, have uh, negative effects on, on coastal environments because they're usually kept in check by animals like that. And uh, so that's, I think, the main threat that we've got in terms of the coastal species of cephalopods is that they're being overfished.
0: Interesting. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato, joining you from the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine Atmospheric and Earth Science in Miami, Florida. <laughs> oh, gonna, let's see if we can get some audience questions. I want to have people get ready to line up and uh, get ready to ask questions. Here comes the mic. It's going to be coming down. Um, okay, go ahead, sir. Let's see if that's works. Yeah, working. hi, good evening. Um, it's interesting you mentioned how intelligent Octopuses are because I know they can solve puzzles and they've even recognized people and being so intelligent I normally thought intelligence led to longevity and a long-term life but why hasn't that translated into a long life for an octopus when they're so smart but they're limited to only one or two years of of living Good question. It is a
2: good question. So the the, the simple answer is that uh, octopuses have they have programmed self-destruction that is hormonal, and when they're about ten or eleven months old, their hormones that are not ordinarily uh, coursing through their bloodstream uh, become active, and they literally kill themselves with these hormones. They self-destruct. And the only way to prevent them from activating this kill switch is to remove part of their brains called the, the optic glands, where the hormones are produced. And if you do that, the animal will retreat from sexual maturity and can live another year.
0: Wow. Yeah. It's just not, how they're built. Wow. No. So they're not living 8 to 12 years yet. <laughs> yes, ma'am.
1: Um, so the first question, so it's very small. How you monitor the sea hairs? Is it
2: invasive or
1: is it like an ECG method?
2: no it's, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it because we may as well be truthful. I, I take their brains out, I take their, I, I anesthetize them and I dissect them with teeny tools and uh, take out the, the, the brains, and then I break apart the nerve cells so that I get down to the individual neurons and then I poke them with my glass electrode okay. yeah.
1: I, that's just like my own morbid curiosity right, me,
0: I need to follow up uh, on that question because I used to know a very well known marine biologist and he's, he was a hematologist in, in North Carolina and, and he worked at Duke and a trawler would go out all the time and scoop up all these fish bring them back so he could get the blood and study the blood and he'd have a terrific bully-based dinner oh, yeah. that night any similarity here to when you?
2: <laughs> it's uh, you know we used to have a, a policy in the the Aplegia facility where we were growing these animals where uh, new people had to as an initiation rite had to taste sea hare sushi, uh, and it it it's it's awful. It's <laughs> it they use pigments from their food. Uh, and other compounds from their food as a chemical defense. They put it into the, the, the flesh, the skin, to deter predators. And that's what you're eating when you sample uh, <laughs> sea hare sashimi. It's not tasty.
0: You know, when every year when we do cephalopod, we, we, we always will get a call from a listener about calamari. <laughs> we try to get our tiptoe around that issue, but everybody still wants to think of calamari when... They talk about you had a second part to that yeah, question
1: so you said when you like take away the self destruction they only live in an
2: additional year is it so why is it only an additional year so basically the cells of the body the organs they're just not built to last they're built to last that one year they you know they live fast and die
0: young. <laughs> Is that true of squid? Also? Yeah, I
2: will
1: say that, that pelagic squid are some of the most metabolically active animals and, and they burn through a lot of energy. They burn fast. Yeah.
0: But what is the evolutionary advantage to that if you're going to live fast and die young, right? You're not going to be spreading your genes that yeah. much. But they produce a lot of
2: offspring. so Especially squid, my goodness, yes. How many
0: offspring does squid?
2: Oh,
1: hundreds per clutch.
0: And how many clutches do we... Get?
1: I don't know, actually. Yearly? Half a dozen? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. At so least, how, minimum. So yeah.
0: how many of those individual offspring actually survive and don't get eaten by...
1: Great question. Probably very few of them compared to, to the so adults So they help that feed, feed the rest of the... Yeah. yeah. The larvae are planktonic, and they basically just drift in the open water column. So great food for a lot of other animals that are in the water column.
0: The web of life. Yeah. Wasn't the movie? <laughs> man. Yes. Man. So, this is a stupid question, but. Um, no add-on questions. Oh.
2: <laughs> um, so, for people like me who will eat anything, any meat, any. But I won't eat cephalopods. Is there a word for us? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think we should invent one. Do you have a suggestion? Acephalopodian? I don't know. <laughs> Acephalopodian. That's a good one. I like it.
1: Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, I, I read that, that octopuses have about 33,000 genes, uh, about uh, 10,000 more than humans. What are they doing with those extra one-third genes to, to, for their advantage?
2: This is a tremendous question. Uh, we've been studying this in my lab, too. Uh, they've got a tremendous number of uh, rough drafts in their genome. Uh, genes that can do a job, but they don't have just you know two alleles. They have numerous, many, many opportunities for that gene to be expressed with small changes, small differences in the, the protein sequence that's coded for and that sort of thing. And uh, for an animal that has a 500 million year history on this earth, it's probably not a bad idea to have spares. And and uh, that's my perception. I'm, I'm not you know I'm not a hardcore molecular biologist, but that's my perception. They've got a lot of stuff to continue to play with, over historical time, to improve their species.
0: Wow, <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes,
2: uh, I saw this video a while ago. It was like some study or test. It was on some sea creature. I forget what it was, but there's these two doors. Uh, one opened immediately and one opened 15 minutes later. And the study was to see if it could have like judgment and understand time, and they put an old piece of food behind the one that opened immediately and a more desirable one uh, behind the one that opened later. Uh, and since you're talking about an octopus being able to recognize people and itself and other octopi, my question is how complex is an octopus's sense of judgment? That's a wonderful question, and it is. It, what you've described could be an octopus experiment. The octopus would excel at that particular task. It's called operant conditioning, delayed gratification. So you in, you pass up an immediate reward for the promise of a better reward later. And even the sea hares can learn that. Uh, it's, it's a really essential uh, capability in, in the brains of animals.
0: That's the marshmallow test in people, isn't it? You give kids a marshmallow, and you give them an option. You can have the marshmallow now, or you can wait and get something better later.
2: Like a s'more?
0: Okay. (laughs) Or like five of them. Five of them, oh yeah, five of them. And whether they will actually wait or not, and they make a judgment about that. So the octopuses could do that test. Yeah, better than
2: human children, who probably would take the one marshmallow, right? Uh, Yeah.
0: Some of them. Some of them. Speaking of human children. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So I have a question. Um, like, how do octopuses change color? Yeah. How do they do that?
2: Okay. So, so they have skin that's very reactive and that contains little color sacs distributed throughout the skin and lots of little muscles around every color sac that either can contract it or expand it. And when it's expanded, that color sac is seen on the skin. And so that's one of the ways that they change color. And they, and, and they, they, can, uh, they can produce very complex color patterns, like, um, like the floor. The floor here isn't blue or gray. It's a lot of different colors, right? The octopus or the squid could reproduce this plaid with their skin by use of these, this color sac layer that's controlled by muscles, and then some reflective uh, layers underneath that, so that they can shimmer and be a perfect, perfect thing to dress up for Halloween as.
0: <laughs> dress up as an octopus for Halloween. You got all those different changes. But so that means that they have nerves that control each one of those color sacs, a nerve for each one.
2: Yeah, this is one of the reasons they've got half a billion nerve cells, is that's pretty inefficient, actually, to do it that way. Uh, Fish, do it with hormones. They say, heck with the muscle thing. Let's just have the the color sacs uh, expand or contract by hormonal means.
0: But that means they can't do it as quickly, I would oh, imagine. Oh, they can. They, they can. can.
2: But there, there's a cost. There's a cost. They have to have a lot of their brain devoted to a pretty minor thing.
0: Which well, is... not if you're an octopus. <laughs> it might not be it's judgment like that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yes, sir. I have Two questions. First one is, uh, I read a book by Ed Young, An Immense World, where he talks about senses and how humans sense the world and how animals sense the world. Can you tell us about senses maybe we don't know about in cephalopods?
2: Uh, yeah, they have the ability to see into parts of the visual spectrum that we can't, and they can also see polarized light. Now that I've just said that, I have seen studies that, uh, that suggest that cephalopods can see uh, polarization of light. This is extremely useful in the marine realm, uh, so you can tell what time of day it is, what uh, that sun angle coming through uh, various you know, ocean layers. Um, so those are visual um, uh, acuities that we lack. Uh, you know, our, our eyesight, as far as the animal kingdom goes, is, is pretty poor. Uh, um, let's see, they have tremendous uh, mechanoreceptive capabilities. They have a very, very sensitive sense of touch. Uh, So rather than having new senses, they've got, you know, sort of uh, supercharged senses uh, that are the same ones that
0: we've got. Wow.
2: I'll add to that. It seems like they also heavily
1: rely on taste over things like olfaction that other crustaceans, for example, use heavily. Um, So chemoreception is is not as big of an influence versus them tasting as they go along.
0: Interesting. Next slide. Thank you for thank you, a great audience and asking those questions. <laughs> Let me take a moment to remind our listeners, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Just a couple of more questions. And these are, I think, kinds of questions I'd like to ask uh, because I imagine when y- your students come to work with you with these creatures, They must be, the first time, they're getting really close to them, right? And what are they most surprised by when you work with them? You know,
2: when I first introduce students, undergraduate, college students, or high school students to these animals, uh, they're not seeing them in bags. They're seeing them actually in open-topped aquariums. So I, you know, dig in and pick one up and hand it to the students. And the thing that most surprises them is how slimy they are. (laughs) The, uh, I had one little third grader once, she had really came up with the perfect description. She said, it, it feels like um, a chicken breast that my mom just took out of the refrigerator. Yeah.
0: That's good. It,
2: it's cold and slimy. Yeah.
0: Why is it so rare that we see the, the giant squid in, a, you know, a, li- a living one? What makes it so rare?
1: Um, great question. I will say that, that one of the advantages of studying the small squid is because we can't catch these, these giant squid to, to understand how they use ammonium for buoyancy. And a lot of what we know is from dead, um, dead animals that have been captured at the surface. They're pretty deep. These giant squid are deep-dwelling, and it sounds like they really just surface when they are dead, although there have been recent instances where they've been filmed quite shallow. But yeah, that's, that's one of the challenges of, of a deep-dwelling sw- animal.
0: And, and uh, Lynn, what are the, what's the biggest challenge in your study? What would, let, let me amend that, because I have a blank check in my back pocket here.
2: <laughs> How did you know I was going to say money?
0: <laughs> I talk to a lot of scientists. The <laughs> answer is always the same. <laughs> if I were to give you that blank check, what would you spend it? What do you want to know? What kind of equipment do you, would you like to be invented that, does, that doesn't work or doesn't exist yet? What, would, what is the biggest mystery for you? And I'll like to ask that to you, Andrea, after this, that keeps you from knowing more. I think
2: uh, I would like to design an instrument or a series of instruments that could help me understand how huge numbers of uh, neurons in the brain uh, communicate so effectively, so incredibly rapidly. You know, if the range of behaviors that an organism engages in suggest tremendous complexity and we know that that is the case and it would be very cool to be able to sort of see it all at once um, so that you could at a glance see all right there's operant conditioning going on there's associative learning there's you know this and that how those things differ that's what I would like to know.
0: Andrea question for you.
2: Yes I would say
1: it would be probably more of a technical challenge in terms of actually capturing the squid it's very expensive to take these research vessels that are fully equipped with labs and crews and a lot of the limitations is actually being able to acquire uh deep sea squid that are below a thousand meters in depth so if my name was on (laughs) a blank check i would spend it on um on ways to actually collect and study these squid on board Um, and so i envision some sort of device like their behavior but on a ship and that's as far as yeah, I
0: we have a lot of creative people listening, so maybe somebody will come up. <laughs> I, I, I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you both so much for taking time to be here tonight. Dr. Lynn Fieber, Professor of Marine Biology and Ecology. Dr. Andrea Durant, Postdoctoral Fellow in the Grossell Environmental Physiology and Toxicology Lab. They both join me here at the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine, Atmospheric, and Earth Science in Miami, Florida. Thank you. Thank Ira. you. Thank you.